Hello and welcome on to another episode of the ISO Ball Podcast with your host, Derek Terrio, your place to learn about the NBA on and off the court. So back with another week of this week in basketball, focusing on the week of November 11th to November 17th. So we got some news to get to, some injuries, some uh, signings or a signing, I should say. Uh, we'll go through the games of the week and what I learned this week, just three categories this week, and then uh, that'll wrap up our pod. So... Starting out with the news, uh, we mentioned, I believe, last week that Gordon Hayward was out with a left metacarpal fracture. Uh, the timetable has been released. He's going to be out six weeks uh, with the metacarpal break. Uh, definitely good news uh, from that standpoint. Uh, if he had to had surgery, might have been it out, uh, you know, a couple months to three months. So good news there for Gordon Hayward. And again, we talked about um, the need for guys like uh, Jalen Brown. And Jason Tatum to step up in his place. And even uh, Javante Green, uh, the the rookie, I believe, uh, undrafted wing uh, for Boston, who has been getting some minutes for them as Boston has been surging, although they did lose to the Kings uh, this afternoon. But uh, from what I understand, Boston's still at the top of the league and I believe has the uh, the number one offense, if I'm not mistaken, as well. So uh, good for Boston, and uh, they'll only get better getting Gordon Hayward back in the uh, – about five weeks because the the the, um, the injury timeline timeline got released about uh, you know a week or so ago. So we'll say five weeks until Gordon Hayward gets back. In Sacramento, De'Aaron Fox uh, suffered a grade three ankle sprain in practice and, and is going to be out three to four weeks. Now I think it's going to be longer than three to four weeks. Uh, if you remember last year, it was Lonzo Ball who had a grade three ankle sprain, uh, had to get surgery and, you know, missed a couple of months. So for De'Aaron Fox, uh, for the diagnosis to be three, four weeks, I think is a little bit light. I, I'll, um, if I were to guess, I'd say it's going to be probably closer to two months, just given some of the past history of grade three ankle sprains and, you know, suffering a few myself playing basketball. I know that those are not you know, four-week injuries. I've had lighter ankle sprains that have been four weeks. So we'll see about De'Aaron Fox. Maybe it's less than a grade three ankle sprain. But if it is grade three, uh, and from what we've seen in the past, it is going to be longer than three to four weeks. And that pretty much, I mean, given the Kings' struggles to start the year here, that that pretty much puts uh, a fork in their uh, playoff chances, if you ask me. Yeah, there's some spots opening up, you know, with the Blazers struggling a little bit and, you know, Golden State uh, dropping out of there. So there are a couple spots to be taken there in the bottom of the playoff uh, race in the West. But I just, given the struggles of, of the Kings thus far, and with De'Aaron Fox being out three to four weeks, Marvin Bagley still a couple weeks away with his thumb injury, uh, I think they're just a little bit too thin, even despite getting the win today um, against Boston. I just still think they're a little bit too thin to make a real push with De'Aaron Fox out. They need um, they need their guard, their lead guard, to be able to make that push. So we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, I think uh, with Fox being out at least three to four weeks and what I believe to be longer – I think it's going to be too much for the Kings to handle to get back into that playoff mix. Uh, Eric Gordon had knee surgery for the Rockets. He's going to be out six weeks. Now, I didn't actually see what the reason for the knee surgery was, but he did get the surgery. He's going to be out six weeks. Um, we've seen the Rockets survive these injuries in the past. If you remember last year, there was a stretch where, uh, you know, Chris Paul and Capella and Eric Gordon were all out. And that just, you know, put it put it on Harden and Westbrook's back to be able to carry this team. And, you know, Westbrook was out uh, for a couple games uh, just recently here as well. So it's back on Harden's back and he has just been, you know, absolutely on a tear. And in the MVP conversation, you know, for the fifth straight year with his absolute scoring surge. Uh, and, you know, n- nothing needs to be said about Harden's ability to score and pass the basketball. We know exactly well what he can do in that scenario. But for the second year in a row, 
there's going to be uh, another month or so stretch here where they're going to have to rely big time on James Harden to get the uh, to get the job done uh, for the Rockets, and uh, he has uh, he has done that so far. I mean, I think the Rockets are eight and three to this point, um, and they're continuing to surge, and their defense has looked a little bit better. So I I believe that they can uh, survive this Eric Gordon injury, but obviously for, the Rockets are going to need Eric Gordon to uh, you know maximize their full potential in the regular season and in the playoffs as well. For the Bucks, Chris Chris Middleton is going to be out three to four weeks with a thigh contusion. Um, nothing much to be uh, to be you know speculated on here. I think three to four weeks is a fair diagnosis here. Um, but I, there's again another wing that goes out. Another wing's going to have to step up. That means you know more Sterling Brown, uh, more scoring in the hands of a guy like Eric Bledsoe. Uh, obviously, Giannis has been taking on a massive load there. Um, maybe a little more Ilyasova. And obviously your wings, you know, your, your Kyle Korver, Dante DiVincenzo, and Wes Matthews are definitely going to get some more playing time, uh, and I believe that they can take on that load. I don't really have too many, um, uh, too much concern for the Bucks in this scenario. Obviously Chris Middleton, all-star last year, very important player for this team, but they're deep enough to withstand an injury for a month uh, to Chris Middleton, so I'm not too worried about them uh, in this scenario. Karis Levert uh, suffered a torn ligament in his thumb. A lot of hand injuries this year, by the way. Um, it's actually getting kind of crazy here. But uh, Karis Levert suffered a torn ligament in his thumb and is out four to six weeks for the Brooklyn Nets. This is a big injury for Brooklyn. You know, Karis Levert, uh, we saw what he did last year uh, before the ankle injury. Um, you know, and in the playoffs, he started to get his mojo back a little bit. Looked fairly good this year as well, um, I I thought from uh, from my perspective. But it's uh, going to be tough to, you know, withstand that injury. A lot more Kyrie Irving, obviously. A lot more uh, Spencer Dinwiddie. They're already without Wilson Chandler for the first 25 games of the season. So even uh, more Torian Prince is probably the guy that's going to have to step up uh, in his place. Uh, I think Amon Shumpert signed with the team as well recently. So that could be another guy that fills some minutes for them as well. But Karis LeVert, no, um, uh, no, no, no slouch and a, de- a decently big loss here uh, for Brooklyn. They don't necessarily have the depth to withstand an injury to a player of his caliber. So we'll see how they go. Uh, Brooklyn has been turning it around lately, but you know, without uh, Karis LeVert on the roster, you got to believe that uh, it's going to be a little bit tougher to kind of keep this uh, keep this turnaround going for them. So we'll see what happens. All right, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. So. Carmelo Anthony signs with the the Portland Trailblazers on a non-guaranteed deal. So there's a number of different ways uh, we need to look at this. The first is this. Carmelo Anthony is better at this point than any small forward that the Blazers have on their current roster that isn't injured. Or, sorry, power forward, I should say. Small forward that, you know, they have uh, Rodney Hood. They've got uh, Kent Bazemore. They've got, you know, Anthony Simons, who I guess is more of a shooting guard. But they've got some guys at the three that they can play. But, I mean, at the four, we're looking at Mario Hazonia, Anthony Tolliver, and maybe Scala BCA, but he's probably playing the five. So we're looking more so at Hazonia and Anthony Tolliver. You're telling me that the Blazers couldn't use Carmelo Anthony in spots as an offensive weapon? I find that very hard to believe. Uh, I think Carmelo Anthony can help this team. I do believe that. If we look back to his time uh, with the Rockets, that 10-game sample uh, that we got, there's some interesting things. So we understand that when he joins the Blazers, this is not going to be New York Knicks Carmelo Anthony. 
This is not going to be Denver Nuggets, Carmelo Anthony. This is going to be more in the range of Houston Rockets and Oklahoma City, Carmelo Anthony. And that means a lot more spotting up, a lot more catch and shoot. So looking at the 10-game sample size where he played with the Rockets, he shot 43.8% of his shots on catch and shoots. About five of those, those that was about five shots per game, and he made 34% of those. Eh, not great. Not, not great. Now, if we look at Carmelo Anthony's shot distribution, we see that he took 30. So out of his total shots, he took a total of 121 shots. And out of those 121, 20 were in the restricted area. He made 60% of those. Non-paint restricted area shots, he took 7. He made 57% of those. In the mid-range, he took 30 mid-range shots. He made 40% of those. He took one left corner three, didn't make it. He took two right corner threes, he made one. And he took 61 above the break threes and made 20 for a clip of about 33%. So, I mean, there are some, there's some encouragement there. He was willing to take those shots again. It was only a 10-game sample. He didn't, uh, he didn't necessarily take as many, I think, as uh, he probably would have liked to to get into a rhythm. So there is that as well. If we look back at his time in Oklahoma City, he took a total of 419 above the break threes, and he made uh, 150 of those. So that's good for 35.8%. Uh, in the right corner, he actually shot 15, four, sorry, 14 of 35, good for 40%. But in the left corner, he was only 5 for 21 for 23%. So there is some encouragement that, you know, with the right amount of volume, he could he can make some shots. Now, the problem with Carmelo Anthony to me is not on offense. The problem with Carmelo Anthony to me has always been, can you withstand him defensively? Because the defense is what is going to, to kill the Blazers. Because we've seen in the Oklahoma City in the Oklahoma City series against Utah in the first round, they repeatedly hunted Carmelo Anthony defensively and made him defend on switches and in pick and rolls, and it just ended poorly for OKC. Now, in the regular season, is he going to get hunted? Is he going to just completely uh, be an absolute sieve defensively and a, and a guy that you're just going to say, okay, look, we're just going to look for him every single time down the floor and put him in the action and, and make him defend. You know, I don't think that that happens in the regular season as much as it does in the playoffs. So to an extent, you maybe can hide Carmelo um, and see if it goes from there. But I think he will be able to contribute for the Blazers simply because I think he's just going to be asked to make shots. Like he's just going to be asked to stand there and make shots. And I think he can do that again in 17, 18 with the thunder. He was shot 35.7% from three. And that was on, you know, 474 attempts. He made 169 of those. So he can make three pointers. He says he's been in shape. I, I got to believe that Carmelo Anthony is a better option at the four, not at the three, because he's too slow to defend threes. And, uh, you know, at this point, you can't really blow by anybody. Um, but I believe that Carmelo Anthony at the four in spot minutes, whether that be, you know, 15 to 20 minutes a game, 25 minutes a game, can give you something um, to be able to provide the Blazers with some offense here. Because we understand the Blazers, 
you know, they're they're not they're not doing very well right now. If the playoffs started today, they would be out of the playoffs. Uh, I think they're four and eight or something along those lines, maybe five and eight now. And they they need some help offensively. Dame Lillard absolutely cooking. C.J. McCollum struggling this year. They're getting a little bit from Anthony Simons, and after that, it's just absolutely nothing for the Blazers. So all in all, I do think this this is a quality signing for the Blazers. Again, this is a no risk signing. This is a non guaranteed deal that Melo's going into. And given his propensity in the past um, to, you know, take a lot of, you know, shots on the block, you know, like massage the basketball from, you know, 15 to 18 feet and do post-ups. I don't think that that's mellow anymore. I don't think, I I think he understands now that he can't play that level of basketball. And I think he understands that he's going to have to play more of that catch and shoot game um, in the corners and above the break when he, when the ball swung to him. And I, and I do think uh, that he's going to be able to, uh, to play that role nicely. So, We'll see. I'm excited to have Carmelo Anthony back in the league. I think it was, I think it was just a travesty the way he went out. Like you just don't want to see a guy of his caliber, ten-time All-Star, three-time Olympic gold medalist. You know he's going to the Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame, no question about it. And you just hate to see a guy go out uh, the way he did. So it's good to see Carmelo Anthony back in the league. I'm very happy uh, for him, and I'm happy that uh, his career is going to get just one more shot. And I think he's going to take advantage of it. I don't. I don't think that he's going to let this opportunity slip through the cracks. He seems like a guy that's been humble and that just wants to play. So good for Carmelo Anthony. Again, he's 35 years old. We we're, we've yet to see whether or not uh, he's going to be able, you know, to like what level he's going to be able to provide. Like, and this kind of goes back to that load management conversation we had last week, right? Is is taking an entire year off of basketball mean that he has you know 34 year old legs? Like that's that's the kind of stuff that I was talking about last year. Like, is taking a year off of basketball means he's gonna look spry uh, because he hasn't been playing, you know, high intensity eighty two game basketball, or uh, is he still just gonna, you know, have been aged gracefully? And the fact that he says he's been in the gym uh, every single day working, still going to, uh, you know, prove that uh, he's he's still thirty five and he's going to play like he's thirty five. So we'll see how this goes. But I I like the signing for the Blazers overall. I think this is a no risk signing. Again, they're they're below 500. They need to make a move. They need to get some offense out on the floor. And I think uh, this is a, a great opportunity for Melo to get back and uh, and do his thing. And I think he will. I think he'll. I think he'll succeed in in this role. Now, will it put bring the the Blazers to the playoffs? That's to be seen. Uh, I, I I can't tell you that right now. I, I think there's still another move to be made from. Uh, uh, Blazers general manager Neil O'Shea. I don't think he's going to sit on his hands. I think he's got to actually make another move here, whether that be uh, move Whiteside, get another, sign another center off the streets, um, you know, something along those lines. But they need to make another move uh, in addition to Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony is not the savior here. I think uh, there's still another move that needs to be done by the Blazers, but Carmelo is a good start, uh, in my opinion. All right. Let's go to the games of the week. I got three of them here. I had three good games. Uh, in no specific order this week, I just want to point them out. So on November 12th, we had the Hawks beating the Denver Nuggets 125 to 121. Uh, this game was highlighted by a fantastic Trey Young game where he was just absolutely eating up the Nuggets every which way he possibly could. Um Trey goes for 42, uh, 11 assists. He goes 13 of 21 from the field, 8 of 13 from 3. He did have 6 turnovers, but again, 11 assists. Very solid there. And... When we, get, when we talk about Trey Young, you know, we talk about, you know, the the shooting. 
uh, is pretty uh, is pretty unbelievable. Um, I think that it's fair to put him in that same category now as a Damian Lillard and a Steph Curry from this perspective. He's not as good as those guys, but I'm saying from this perspective where you need to guard him three, four, five feet beyond the line because his range is all the way out there. And I think Lillard and Curry are the only you know two guys that actually uh, warrant that type of attention that far from the hoop. And I think you can play or sorry, put Trey Young in that category because as of right now, uh, this man has just been absolutely deadly from deep. And I'm talking deadly. So from 30 to 34 feet, uh, again, the uh, the NBA three-point line is 23 feet, 9 inches. So from 30 to 34 feet, Trey Young is shooting 6 of 19 for 31%. Again, this is from 30 to 34 feet out. Ridiculous stuff. From 25 to 29 feet, so at least a foot to about four feet beyond the three-point line, he's shooting 27 of 70 uh, for 38%. I mean, this man has absolutely been on an absolute tear. And in this game specifically, uh, his off-the-dribble game was just absolutely fantastic. His ability to just break guys, get, break guys down off the dribble, engage that second defender uh, to be able to make that pass. You know, we know Trey Young is a shooter, but his passing might be his best skill, if you can believe it or not. Um and, you know, Trey Young was just absolutely fantastic in this game. He, he's getting to the rim. He can blow by uh, on bigs. He can, uh, you know, has a bunch of different step-back variations that he can use to get into the mid-range hit. If you don't pick him up in transition, he'll pull up from 30. He, he's just got all the the, the, the tricks in the bag in this book and um, the, tr the tricks in the bag and in his book, I should say. Uh, he had a nice uh, nutmeg where he just, you know, put it between the guy's legs and hit, went to mid-range, knocked it down, stared at the, the Nuggets bench for five seconds easily before uh, the Nuggets had called a timeout. It just, his confidence is just oozing out there. And, uh, you know, the Nuggets started out in this game 12-0 run uh, in the first in the first quarter uh and, you know, with Trey's ability to just get to the rim, shoot from three off the dribble, shoot from three off the catch, uh, drop dimes, you know, throw quick ahead passes in transition after they scored. Just all the all the good things you're looking for from Trey uh, in this game. And it showed uh, as the Hawks beat the Nuggets uh, 125 to 120, 121 uh, from the Nuggets from the Nuggets side. Um, not much to uh, be talked about here. Jamal Murray, 7 of 16 for 18 points. Uh, he struggled to shoot a little bit. He's you know not doing as well as we would have hoped this year. Uh, Nikola Jokic you know, only played 30 minutes, had 20 points, uh, 6 rebounds, 7 assists, 7 of 19 from the field, 1 of 8 from 3. Again, uh, the Nuggets really haven't played their best basketball yet, uh, and yet they're still uh, seven and three, uh, I believe, to this point. I think uh, I think they might be even better at this point. Uh, in fact, sorry, eight and three uh, from when I'm recording this, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So, Nuggets are playing real well, uh, and they still haven't played their best basketball, in my opinion, uh, which is good to see because once they once they get it rolling, uh, it's going to be tough. Uh, to stop them nine and three. Oh my goodness. I apologize. I'm looking deep into the uh, the league pass stuff here uh, They actually uh, got a win today before I started recording this against uh, the Grizzlies So nine and three for the Nuggets. I still don't think they've played their best basketball yet And uh, that's looking good uh, for them because once they start rolling once they lock in defensively once they start uh, The offense starts clicking a little bit. It's going to be even tougher uh, to beat this team
All right, second game I got here. Rockets beat the Clippers uh, 102-93 on November 13th. This was uh, the battle of Harden and Kawhi, and uh, Harden got the best of the team uh, in this matchup. He was just absolutely fantastic in this game, dropping 47 points, um, you know, mostly on the guarding of Kawhi Leonard. Uh, Patrick Beverly does a solid job guarding him, despite uh, Russell Westbrook's comments after the game. Uh, Harden was 0 of 6 with Beverly guarding him, but, you know, 12 of 26 from the field, 7 of 13 from 3. Uh, did have 7 assists, did have 6 turnovers, though. Uh, had 6 rebounds. And Harden just continues to be fantastic, playing 44 minutes in this game. And he just continues to be able to knock down shots off the dribble, continues to isolate uh, at a high efficiency. And uh, after that slow start he had this year, he continues now to just really be on a roll and has really played his way back into the MVP conversation. Uh, from the Clippers' perspective, Kawhi Leonard played 41 minutes in this game, uh, 26 points, 12 rebounds, 7 assists, 10 of 24 from the field, struggled shooting a little bit, 3 of 9 from 3. Um, but uh, the seven assists is always good to see. We've seen Kawhi uh, really take that next step as a passer uh, this year for the Clippers, something he really, uh, as we go back to my conversation uh, with the best 10 players in the NBA, I talked about uh, Kawhi's passing being as one of the, the weaknesses in his game, if there are any. And he's quickly you know, plugging that hole very, uh, very fast as his playmaking is looking excellent. He's able to, you know, find skip passes uh, at a pick and roll. He's able to find roll, roll men and things of that nature. So good things uh, coming here for Kawhi as a distributor. Harden continues to be able to knock down shots at a ridiculous clip off the dribble, no matter who's guarding him. And uh, both of these teams are rolling right now. Uh, the Rockets uh, defense has come a long way as well. They've, uh, I think over the last four games, they've had a under a 100 defensive rating. Uh, uh, which is really plugging that hole for them uh, that they've had uh, on the defensive end in the past. You know, with a with a guard tandem like uh, Westbrook and Harden, you you kind of expect that they won't uh, necessarily be the stoutest of defensive groups. But right now they're ten and three. Uh, they they held the Timberwolves to one hundred five. They held the Pacers to one hundred two, and they held uh, I believe the Clippers to 92, 93. So over the past three games, they've really been locking in here on defense, and uh, and that's good to see because that's that's what the Rockets are going to need to get uh, to the NBA Finals uh, is to you know play that good defense and then be able to execute on offense when it counts. All right, finally, uh, this was my actually my personally favorite game of the of the week and that was the Oklahoma City Thunder beating the Philadelphia the struggling I should say Philadelphia 76ers 127 to 119 in overtime uh, this game was highlighted by the play of Chris Paul in the fourth quarter scoring 16 points in the fourth quarter in overtime as he really took over the game down the stretch here uh, great to see for the Thunder as, you know, they've been uh, close to an elite defense, a top 10 defense so far, but a bottom 10 offense, uh, you know, with Chris Paul at the helm is pretty, um, you know, pretty surprising. Now, despite all that, Chris Paul has only taken about 11 shots per game. So he's he seems to be like he's he's on a bit of a leash, it seems. And uh, you even heard him after the game. Uh, they said, what was the difference tonight? And they said, they let me play tonight, man. They let me hoop. So I'm... That's kind of that was kind of an interesting comment. I don't know exactly what that means. I, I find it hard to believe that Billy Donovan is not letting you know Chris Paul play to his fullest potential. But he was fantastic uh, for the Thunder in this game. 
really got uh, down the stretch, really was able to snake it into the lane, get in, um, get into the pick and roll, snake the pick and roll, get into that little mid-range and knock those shots down, was uh, was using that rip-through move when the Sixers were in the bonus. He got a couple guys with that. I think he got Korkmaz with that. He definitely got Ben Simmons with another one. And, uh, you know, CP3 continues. Uh, you know, he started the year struggling again. He's only ta- he's only taking 11 shots. His usage is not necessarily as high as it's been in the past. Um, but he's continue- continuing to be effective with the opportunities that he gets, in my opinion. He's shooting over 40% from downtown on five attempts per game. So he's still very effective. Uh, I don't really want to hear any of the uh, Chris Paul is washed stuff. Uh, I don't think that that is the case. I, st- I still think he's an effective player. Uh, is he as effective as he was uh, when he was in L.A. and New Orleans? No. It, but uh, to say that he he's about as, as, as effective, maybe not if not more effective, than he was in the second year in Houston, um, just given the fact that they're putting the ball in his hands and allowing him to create a little bit, even if it's not uh, as many possessions as I'd like to see. I think he's just as good as he was in the second year in Houston. Maybe not that first year, because that first year he was just incredible. But that second year in Houston... Uh, I think he's about the same as he as he was then. So no, Chris Paul to me is not washed. Uh, I I don't know where that narrative came from. I think people are just re- reading box scores too much and not looking at kind of what he's doing on the floor. Uh, but in my opinion, he's uh, he, he's still he's still doing very well. Um, you know, Danilo Gallinari is carrying a lot of off the offensive load along with Shea Gilgis Alexander. And uh, you know, for the Sixers, they they've been struggling a little bit. I mean, they it's it's been it's been tough uh, for them. Now on on Sunday here, uh, as as I'm looking, they did get a 114.95 win over the Cavaliers, which helps them get back on track, which uh, which is good, and they really needed that. But I mean, giving up uh, points like crazy here. I mean, 127 to the Thunder. I'm just scrolling back through League Pass here to see the recent games. Uh, 127 to the Thunder, although that game was in overtime. 112 to the Magic. Uh, okay, 97 to the Cavaliers. Uh, but again, that's the Cavs. No, no, nothing much to be made about that. Uh, and yeah, that was the only three games they played this week. So, you know, for a team that I thought was going to be one of the best defenses in the NBA, they really have uh, been struggling a little bit here. Looking at their defensive rating here, they're ninth at 103.6, which I guess is okay. It's, it's not it's not terrible, but I mean, at the beginning of the season, I thought that this team was going to be a a top um, you know a top team in the league. I uh, defensively, I really did. I thought that this uh, team was going to be a top team in the NBA, uh, just given their personnel. And now that you know they're only ninth, I guess, I mean, I guess it's okay, but I I still expected them to be a little bit better. And then on offense, they're 17th right now in offensive rating at 106.7. Uh, and again, with their personnel, with guys like, you know, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, Josh Richardson, even Al Horford to an extent. This team should just be better on offense, in my opinion, uh, and on defense. So I think they'll turn it around. To, you know, we're still early in the season here, you know, only 12, 13 games being played uh, for this team. 13 games, it says here, and they're 8-5. and five. So we'll see, but I th- their net rating is still 3.1, which is, you know, solid. Um, I think it's good for 10th in the NBA. So th- not all is lost here for the Sixers, but I think they, uh, um, you know, for the hopes that they had this year of, uh, you know, being a finals team and uh, right there with the Milwaukee Bucks and representing the Eastern Conference in the NBA Finals, uh, this this performance through 13 games is not going to get it done. They're going to need to be better than that, in, in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, 76ers uh, struggling a little bit, but uh, I think they can get it back on track. 
All right, what I learned this week. So I listened to an interesting podcast. Uh, I listened to a lot of different podcasts. Uh, you know, just to name a few here, I listened to uh, Dunked On uh, with Nate Duncan and Danny LaRue. Real GM Radio with Danny LaRue is another good one. Uh, I listened to uh, Brian Windhorse podcast, The Hoop Collective. I listened to The Jump. I uh, listened to uh, the No Dunks podcast, uh, formerly The Starters. Uh, I listened to uh, Thinking Basketball with Ben Taylor and, you know, a, cu- a couple other ones as well. Those those are just a few to be named. Um, but I listened to an interesting Real GM radio here uh, with Danny LaRue and Seth Partnow, and they talked about, you know, shot gravity and gravity in general. And, you know, the idea that a good reluctant shooter – might be worse than an average high volume shooter. And that, you know, that, that was kind of interesting uh, to me. And th- there's a couple of examples that they mentioned uh, that kind of illustrate that point. Now, one of those was a guy who shoots, you know, a lot of attempts, but isn't necessarily like a great shooter, uh, is an example of someone that you know just because they're not a good shooter you still have to guard them and the the example they used here is Marcus Smart. Now Marcus Smart is usually about a a low 30s uh, shooter from three. He really hasn't been an excellent shooter in his career but the fact of the matter is is that he's so confident in taking those shots that you just have to guard him and it's it's interesting because you just feel like you're like the coach is telling you like, Hey, just because he's not a good shooter, like he's going to take them. He's going to take those shots and he's a confident shooter. And just because he doesn't shoot a great percentage, you know, him taking six or seven of those. Now I think he's taking less of those on the year to be clear, but just as an example, if he takes six or seven of those and he's making them at like a 32, you know, percent clip, like that's a little bit more dangerous than a guy that only makes, that's only taking like, you know, two and a half, three a game that makes them at a 39% clip because the guy making them at a 39% clip is not as confident of a shooter. And you know that, you know, a hard closeout may make him reluctant to shoot the ball. Whereas a guy like Marcus Smart, like you put it in his hands and if the close, if the close is just a little bit late, he's going to let that thing fly. And that is, is an interesting concept to me. And that's the same thing with role men uh, out of pick and roll. So you got these, you got these role men who maybe aren't necessarily as athletic or, or as dangerous, you know, making uh, the short roll reads or finishing around the rim. But if they're rolling every time to the basket and you see this big body coming at you, you have to respect them with, you know, a guy that tags the roller and then gets back to the shooter because they're, they're getting that roll pass so many times Per game and you know you know within five to six seven feet at the rim like these are NBA players and they're going to make those shots even if they're not an incredible finisher around the rim don't have enough craft you know the the up and unders you know the extensions with the left those sort of things they're still going to be able to make those shots if they get enough roll opportunities so you and and this goes with shooters as well once they see a couple go down it's very easy to see a scenario where they start making two three four five uh, you know, threes in a row or five, uh, you know, shots around the rim at a pick and roll in a row. And you need to guard them, even though their, their percentages in those areas might not warrant the type of attention that you're giving them. So I thought that that is interesting. Um, maybe that's something that you, you know, you should look out for when you watch these games, watch for a three point shooter or a roll man that not isn't, doesn't necessarily draw as much gravity or shouldn't draw as much gravity, 
but demands attention because of the confidence and the volume that they shoot with. Um, and I, I thought that that was, you know, quite interesting because I've always, I've always thought to myself, I see a guy that can't shoot in the, in the corner and I say, you know, why are they closing out to him? So, so heavy. And it's because the coach and the scouting report has clearly dictated to them. Hey, look, I know this guy doesn't shoot a good percentage, but he's confident. He's going to take them at a high clip. Just get out on there because even if he, even if he shoots, you know, seven or eight of them and only makes two or three, like that. That's a problem for our defense. Like those two extra, those those six points are the difference in the game. And if you give him, you know, open shots and you and you just let him shoot it, maybe that two turns into four or five, and then you've got even bigger problems. So I thought that that was an interesting conversation that they had, and I thought that was an interesting concept. Basically, understanding that even though statistics say that a specific player may not demand as much attention uh, as a role man or as a shooter, their confidence and their ability to shoot them at volume may warrant more attention to that player in a specific area than would originally be thought um, if they were just, uh, you know, as confident or as reluctant to shoot as their percentages indicated. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the ISO Ball podcast, This Week in Basketball. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, with you know similar categories, uh, maybe a, a couple more topics that we can touch on as well. Uh, please give me a follow uh, if you can on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, IsoBallPod uh, or IsoBallPodcast. You can search either one of those two. Uh, the podcast is available pretty much anywhere you get podcasts, uh, anywhere you can think of, including um, you know Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Uh, if you can subscribe, rate me five stars. That would really help a lot. Um, you know, I'm really starting from scratch here, even though I've been doing this for a, you know a bit of a long time. Um, really don't have that many, you know, connections or anybody, uh, that I can lean on in the industry. So this is really me, you know, just, uh, trying to get it out the mud and really trying to create a name for myself. So anything you guys can do, whether it be my friends or strangers, uh, listening to the podcast, if you guys can just, uh, rate it five stars, subscribe, share, you know, tell two friends to tell two friends, that sort of thing that would really help out, help me out a ton. So again, thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week. Thanks again.